On this episode of Of Mex and Men, the Primus thinks he can predict the future. Dan learns when you're late for a meeting, it's best to go all in. But Justin is the one who got dealt the bad hand. This is Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. It's me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. What's going on, boys? Well, I've shaved my head to get more supple connection to my neural helmet, so I'm feeling pretty jazzed. That's good, because this week we're starting off by taking our first steps into our next trilogy. Warrior Unguard. By Michael A. Stackpole. So let's get into it. Prologue. Comstar. First Circuit Compound. Hilton Head Island. North America. Terra. 1st of June, 3022. That's how this starts. This is interesting because this is the first time we've seen which later becomes a staple, this little block of text describing the location and the date. This is very important for being able to keep track of things. And very interestingly, I thought, well, of course they're on Terra. Okay, so they're on Earth. Uh, but it's 3022. And that, so this is actually before Decision at Thunder Rift. So that's interesting. We're like, oh, okay, we're on Terra in 3022. We're starting off hot here. Right on Terra, before Decision of Thunder Rift kicks off, it's right into it, here in the prologue. So, we get this scene. We are immediately introduced to two characters, right? Mendo Waterly, the precentor of Deron, and the Primus, Julian Tiepolo. It's Comstar, right? This is the Comstar, this is the first circuit. And so, we learn... Quickly, okay, Primus Julian Tiepolo. This is like the head guy, right? The scene opens, right? And Minda Waterly, this woman, she's entering the Primus's chambers and she's come to speak with him. It's this very beautiful, he's up on this thing. She tries to slip in unnoticed, but he turns and is like, the peace of Blake be with you. And she's like, ah, oh, how did he know I was here? Because he's like this very wise, it's very wizardly. You know, I think... uh Mendo's looking at him and she's like thinking to herself how like vulture-like his features are, right? He's kind of perched up there. She plays this game with him, right? She's like, can I get in the room without him hearing? And then she is surprised when very quickly he responds to her quiet footsteps. And I think that really sets the whole scene off. There's this immediate tension from the get-go, Right. There's clearly things between these yeah. two characters. And we also get a hint of Stackpole's economy of character writing. Because he tells you everything you need to know about these characters immediately through their thoughts and actions. The pacing in this book is going to be breakneck compared to kind of what we've seen in oh, yeah. the Grey Death trilogy. So we get so much information here. Yeah, and Brent, I think you hit it right on the head there 
where Stackpole clearly kind of set out to immediately place all of his writing style on the table. Like as we go through this prologue, we're going to see it. He places us right into tension, as you said, and sets this scene with this tension point to dive us into political intrigue. And as we go through it, we're going to talk a lot more about the political points that they're going to talk about. But I just found it really striking right off the bat. That was the same scene that hit me as I was going through it the first time that I was like, oh, Stackpole hits it right out the gate. It's a different animal altogether. It's a different kind of storytelling. It's not to say that what Keith has done is bad. We've come to have a lot of respect for Mm -hmm. Keith's work. It's just that this is definitely coming right off of the Grey Death Legion. This is a visceral change. It is much different in pretty much every way, except for the fact that we're still talking about giant rompy stompy robots. Yes, it's very snappy. And you can tell the tension. The two characters here, Minda Waterly and Primus Tiapolo, they're like immediately like snippy with each other, right? Just like right away, they get off on a bad foot. There's clearly some kind of history. And he's talking to her about, I thought, since you're from the Combine. And you're like, oh, yeah, because she's the precentor of Deron, right? And that's a planet that's in the Combine. So she is like the second tier down from, in terms of Comstar, like rank, right? She's like in charge of like a whole planet and she's part of this council. And she's come here to talk to this guy who's like the Primus, right? And you're like, oh, okay. So right away, we're like, these are like high ranking Comstar officials, but they're like clearly like they have some kind of disagreement. Right, immediately. And you're like, okay, interesting. Tiapolo hints at Waterly's ambition. It's clear that Mindo might be gunning for his job and might have some biases towards her former house. Yeah. She shows up, they go back and forth for a little bit, and he makes it clear, like, oh, I'm sure you're here to talk about the same things. You know, she's like, oh, didn't you get my messages? And he's like, yes, you've made your concerns very clear. And she says that down there in the courtyard, Katrina Steiner and Hans Davian are downstairs as they speak, right, in the Comstar facility, and they're signing a treaty, right, between the two nations. So we learn that the nature of their disagreement is that Waterley is concerned that with the joining of the Federated Sons and the Lyran Commonwealth, that they'll become too powerful, right? That they'll become like a, uh, like a superpower. They'll become a threat to Comstar, right? Comstar will lose power. The inner sphere will lose stability. A valid concern, I would argue, for an organization such as Comstar. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it really piggybacks off of the end of The Price of Glory as we got into Comstar as a faction in the Inner Sphere to pick it right back up with this very similar energy that Comstar is concerned about all the interactions of the different factions in the Inner Sphere. And to me, it really goes to confirm what Keith was showing through a lot of background plotting and leaving a lot of questions about it, whether, okay, we have rogue agents. What is Comstar as a whole was left murky. And then we pick up right here where we get a few more answers to that. And I just think that flows very nicely together. 
And Grayson's validated here, right? It's like that line of dialogue where Grayson's like, I get this picture of Comstar is the secret sixth house. Yeah, so uh, eat it, Laurie. Think I checked out, do you? So they're going back and forth. They're having this disagreement. And the Primus, he's like, look, we've been over this before. All right. We learn like, oh, this has been a matter of contention with them for a while. This is not the first time she's just come to confront him directly. And we're just getting a little glimpse into uh, what happened here. The Primus tells her, we know that Wolf's Dragoons will soon switch from the service of the Lyran Commonwealth to House Corita, and the Kelhounds are going to go over to the Federated Sons. And also, the Primus says that the analysts predict the Kelhounds will eventually return to Katrina Steiner's service, the Lyran Commonwealth, but they're, they're about to go work for the Federated Sons for a while. It's like, oh, okay. Two big name drops there. I'd like to call it ample foreshadowing for multiple books. Yeah, and so he's telling her about these like troop movements and stuff, and oh, like, oh, it'll be fine. These mercenaries are going to work with these guys. And she's like, exactly. Now you have like the best merc units, but then she's like, look, I don't care about the troops, okay? It's funny. She's like, this is, dude, this is about how the Commonwealth doesn't respect us, right? To them, we're just like the phone company. They don't get it. They don't respect the vision. Their perspective will infect the other great houses, right? People are going to lose respect for us. Don't you get it? She says, you've allowed the devil to mate with damnation. And you're like, it's all, it's very dramatic. You know, she gives this whole speech about how like the Commonwealth doesn't respect the vision. The Primus hits her back though. He's like, oh, so you think House Davian is worse than House Steiner? And... Minda Waterly, she's just getting like progressively angrier, right? She's like, think about it. Hans Davian loves Lost Tech, dude. You know, he loves collecting Lost Tech. You know who else loves Lost Tech? Us. <laughs> Not only that, we can't even get in our like counterintelligence, right? His ministry of intelligence is like so good that we can't get anyone close to him. We don't have any agents in his court. His game is too tight. I mean, he's like a serious threat. And the Primus is like, hmm, the fox is indeed an enigma. And he does tell her, he's like, all right, you know what? Honestly, I didn't expect that Hans Davian would ask or receive the hand of Melissa Arthur Steiner in marriage. And you're like, oh, interesting. So Hans Davian is going to marry Katrina Steiner's daughter. He says that here. And it's very like, no one knows about this, right? He's just, he just kind of brings it up like, all right, I'm, I'm going to bring you in on it. But the Primus tells her, he's like, look, you don't see reality the way I do. All right, listen, you got it all wrong. You're too tight. You're too tense. You got to relax. It's going to be fine. Trust me. Like, I have a plan. It's going to be all right. This is when she brings up. She's like, oh, well, maybe I'll just have the first circuit to strip you of your primacy. Maybe you're not fit to be the leader. And it's like, oh. She's going to try to like get him impeached or whatever, right? They're getting pretty snippy. It's going off. And so the Primus, he's like, all right, look, when he hears that, he's like, I don't have, I don't want to deal with this. All right. He's like, look, let me let you in on something. Okay. And I like this. He has like this star chart on the wall. He points over to it and he says, political. And then like the political map gets superimposed like over the chart. And this is where we see like the battle tech map. Right. If we're like in like this is where you see the red, all the different colors of the houses like spread over the star chart. He says that he believes that the joining of the two houses will actually 
solidify stronger alliances between the other houses, the houses in opposition to them, right? And he's like, you see, they're going to escalate as well. And I believe that balance will be maintained. This upsets her further because she's like, yeah, but it's probably not going to be enough. Yeah. She's like pointing at the map. She's like the Capellan Confederation, dude. She's like, <laughs> no. They can't even manufacture yeah. assault mechs She's right like, now. that's not happening. He's like, the Free World League just got done with the Civil War. They're not very good. And he's like, look, listen, they're not strong enough to stage an invasion, but they're strong enough to repel an invasion. All right. They can still defend themselves. He's like, aside from continued border rage, we'll see no major shift on that front in our lifetimes. And you're like, oh, okay. And- <laughs> Oh, he, um, interesting. Remember, he also tells her that Yanos Merrick recovered control of his realm, but his son Thomas is in our service. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Remember, we talked about Thomas. Yeah, Yanos Merrick's son works for Comstar, is what he implies, is what it seems like. And he also brings up, he's like, oh, don't forget about your own Draconis Combine. It's going to have the Wolf's Dragoons. Think about that. They're pretty strong. So that should be good for you, right? And Mendo's <laughs> like, okay, but I just, I don't think any of those houses are going to be strong enough to stand against the combined might of the Fed Sons and the Lyran Commonwealth, though. I don't, I don't know. Oh, she also mentions, she brings up the Galter campaign. She says something like, Hans Davian will soon begin the Galter campaign. And... That's you're like, okay, what's that? They don't really, it's some kind of military exercise. So this is where the Primus is like, look, he tells Mendo, he's like, I want to send you back to the Combine, okay? Oh, right, because that's what she brought that up earlier. She's like, oh, and now you're trying to send me away? You know, you want to get rid of me? And he's like, no, I want to send you back because I want you, all right? Because you're my number one, you know? <laughs> you're my main, you know? It's a, uh, I need my you. Girl. Exactly. You know I need you to coordinate a meeting <laughs> with the other house leaders. Takashi Kurita, Yanos Merrick, and Maximilian Lau. And he also tells her, he's like, you know, Max Lau, he is trying to do a little something. He is trying to replicate his success that he had with the Merrick Civil War. And you're like, oh, the Primus reveals that Maximilian Lau, the leader of the Capellan Confederation, had a major hand in playing the two sides against each other in the um, Merrick Civil War. And you're like, oh, interesting. He was a major interloper. It's a bit of a meme in the Battletech community about Capellans and Skullduggery. And you'll see here that it's it's rightly earned, at least in this era. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, so he had a major hand in the Civil War. And he's like, yeah, and he's trying to do it again with Michael Hasek Davion, right? And we learn about, oh, the Prince of the Capellan March. He wants to be Prince of the Federated Sons. And so Maximilian Lau is working with Duke Michael, and Duke Michael is going to refuse Hans the use of his troops. It's like, you're right. There's a lot of political intrigue. We're getting a lot really fast here. We're like, okay, we're okay, Capellan March. All right. And then Mendo's like, hmm. And I see you also wish to exploit Frederick Steiner's desire to supplant Katrina. Hmm, yes. The Primus brings up the point, this whole thing, they're trying to maintain balance because if any particular house feels like they have a major upper hand, then it's like guaranteed war. 
right? Which is true. If like one house thought that they could just kill all the others, they probably would, right? The, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> they probably would. That's how these whole succession wars kicked off in the first place, really. Yeah. They also bring up that, oh yeah, every leader of the great houses, right? They, they dream of once again being the first lord of the Star League. They're, they're all going to reunite the Star League. And some of them claim they very much are. Yeah, just, that's true. In everything except realization. Yeah, and everything except legitimacy. <laughs> <laughs> but now they're like, with the literal marriage of the two houses, though, House Davian and House Steiner, then they will have a legitimately stronger claim, it seems, right? They'll have this whole hereditary thing going on. But they mention at the end of the conversation, this is when it's like Hans Davian, he's going to marry Melissa Steiner, but the other houses don't know about that, right? They know that there's like a treaty, right? Everyone knows the two nations have started working together, but they don't know about the uh, the marriage, but we do, all right? And we're not going to tell them, right? okay? We're not going to, we're, we're just going to keep that between <laughs> us. You know, but that That's doesn't right. mean that we can't use that knowledge in our own plans. And you're like, okay. And then that's the prologue. And you're like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. It's a ton. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to Battletech, right? This is like the late <laughs> title card drop. And it's just like Battletech. Yeah. And you're like, oh, cool. This prologue, I think it mirrors the original prologue to Decision at Thunder Rift so well. What that prologue says about the universe is realized in this prologue. Yes. We see it in action. Yeah. Right? And the crazy thing about it, and this is just such a huge point in Stackpole's favor here, <laughs> is that everything he talks about, all the intrigue, all these steps of plans from what I've encountered in Battletech, these are all huge important points that are going to be coming up. We basically get a plot outline here and the fact Stackpole condenses that into a concise prologue where he can talk about so many major things. You really don't get lost in it. You're you're brought it's right into it. It's and easy to yeah. read, which is impressive for its contents. And to go through all of that, which Without saying this negatively towards the Grey Death trilogy, this prologue encompasses as much political machinations in the Battletech universe as we got through all three books. Now, the Grey Death trilogy, we get a yeah, way more intimate like look. A, a yes, and ball game, exactly. Right? That's totally. They're definitely trying to do different things. Yes. Just in defense, there's people. Like shouting, like while they're painting their minis right now. But like Aaron, like <laughs> the Grey Death Legion's kind of this like slice of mercenary life, and this is tonally very different. Yeah, but which is your point? Yeah, I also think that it's such a great transition, as we talked about when we wrapped up the Grey Death trilogy. The Grey Death trilogy is a great way to step into the universe. Keith does deliver it in a way that you can digest a brand new universe to you. And from this, Stackpole takes that foundation of somebody that would be aware of what is going to happen in this universe and says, now I get to run with it. And so two completely and different things. He does. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, neither of which reflecting on the quality of the other 
But Stackpole comes out here almost with a mission statement in this prologue saying, we're getting deep <laughs> and we're getting deep real quick. The soundtrack here is is 80 synth wave and it is a at a high tempo yes. and a high pace. Yes. And he wants you to keep up and he makes it easy for you to do so without sacrificing in my opinion a lot. Oh, not yet though. From the opening up until this point there's been no music. Okay, I just want to be clear. It, it was just it was just the footsteps and the conversation like right so you start off black title card. It's just like 3022. Right. And then it's Mendo Waterly walking yes. in. And then they have this whole thing and it's like, but that's just between us. And then it's like the title card battle tech. And it's like, dun, 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 dun. Yep. And then that's when, cause then, cause the next it's like, we're going to go to 3026. It's like four, it's like four years later. And uh, it's so sick. That's how I would do it. And then it's like the office on Kittery. It's like phones ringing in like the background and shit, you <laughs> yeah. know, and Justin like at his desk, just like writing yeah dude this movie fucking rules (laughs) (laughs) already we haven't even got yeah (laughs) we haven't even gotten to the proper chapters and it already rules it is cool that i remember at the end of the price of glory i was like man i hope we get to learn more about comstar and then right away it's like oh here's comstar and i'm like oh cool yes this is like we're we're like we are like at the top right and this happened before all of that happened, dude. They had already yes. had this conversation. That's cool. Things were already in motion. I love it. They give us so there's so much to chew on, right? He like lays out the whole <laughs> It's like a Dark Souls intro. You know, you see like all the bosses, <laughs> you see a little bit of everyone, and it's like, here's what we're gonna yeah. be hanging out with. The stage is set. Yeah, this rules. Great prologue. Very interesting. And we'll have to see how the show begins in the first chapter. Chapter one. So we are on Kittery now. It's at the Capellan March, which is in the Federated Suns. All right. And it's the 27th of November, 3026. They're like, oh, okay. So this is over four years later from the prologue. Right. So we get this time skip. I love a good time skip. <laughs> I love that. You know, I feel like the, t- the card, the title card, you know, four years later. And then we cut over to this guy. Right, we are introduced to uh, Major Justin Allard. We see this guy, right, and he's sitting in his office. Okay, we can see that he's like a military officer. He's at his desk. He's doing some paperwork, and he gets a knock on his door. Oh, hold up! (laughs) So we get a knock on this plasteel door. Yeah, plasteel. It says it right there, plasteel. Yeah, it's a plasteel door. That's plastic and steel. <laughs> I guess. So I looked up. To, I was like, surely there's a Sarna uh, bit on Plasteel. Surely this is like a thing that's a, a, a reoccurring material from Battletech. And uh, no, <laughs> there's no Sarna article on Plasteel. And 
I was just like, oh, there's nothing. Except there's this bit about barrier armor rating. Anyway, uh, I did, on on Wikipedia, apparently Plasteel is a composite of fiberglass and steel patented by automobile manufacturers, first used in 1973, which, since it's in 1973... That might very well be exactly what we're talking about, a real-world material. Also, Plasteel is used in Dune, a durable and tough form of steel mentioned by Frank Herbert in his 1965 science fiction novel, Dune. So, maybe it's a bit of an homage to Dune. I don't know, but uh, I I was just like, this this has like a texture to it. It feels Star Wars, right? Which makes sense, considering what Michael Stackpole goes on to write. That was all Plasteel. Everybody, back to your scheduled programming. Wow, you know, that's really interesting. Plasteel, huh? I love that. Thank you, Brent. That's great. It's definitely a material this door is made out of. <laughs> so yeah, he gets a knock on the Plasteel door, okay? And this, uh, I did, I wanted to point out, it. now it does say that Justin is slender and dark-haired, right? Slender, dark-haired mech warrior. This guy's cool. He straightened his jacket. So this young guy comes in, this young private, Robert Crayon, and he says that he's reporting for disciplinary action. And so the kid walks in, Justin tells him, you're being subject to this disciplinary action because of your insubordination. But he's like, you know, it's not because you called me a, what was it now? And the kid's like, he thinks it's so funny, right? He's clearly like a like kind of like got this attitude, kind of like this punk attitude. I think he tells him to like at ease and the kid like posts up and he's like, not like that. He's like, I mean, <laughs> didn't say fall apart. Yeah. He's all like, whatever, <laughs> you know, he's got a real attitude and he's like, you're not even here because of that. Uh, you know, what was it you called me? And the kid, he like smiles and he's like, he's like, oh yeah, I think I called you like a, a half wit son of a Capellan whore forced on a Davian noble to prevent a war. He's like, exactly. <laughs> That's not the problem here. I mean, it's a problem. It's not the problem. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Justin's just like, man, this kid's so racist, but right. We need to point out. Okay. Justin is half Capellan. It says that, and it's clearly coded as like Asian, right? You, you, you clearly get that. It's like a thing right away. So for context, a lot of Capellan space is made up of people whose ancestry can be drawn back to China and a lot of the eastern part of Terra. Yeah. Similar yes. to the Draconis Combine being built upon Japanese culture and ancestry. Exactly. It is. Yeah. The Capellan Confederation is like a little, you know, it's like a little bit of a space China. It's true. Now, notice I didn't say exclusively of Chinese heritage because that is not true. There's quite a cornucopia of different people all over the inner sphere, not even just in Capellan space. But nonetheless, here it stands that Justin has some essentially Chinese ancestry. Yeah. And Justin tells him, like, look, I don't care that you hate me because my father's first wife was Capellan. And he met her while serving in the Federated Sons Embassy on Cyan. But he's like, again, that's not the reason you're being disciplined. You're being disciplined because you disobeyed Lieutenant Redburn's direct order to return to the watch post. And 
He tells him, I even noticed that the report doesn't include the altercation that happened after you refused the order. So I assume that Redburn left it out for his you know, own reasons. But then we can see that like Private Crayon has like a swollen jaw and you're like, oh, he got into a fight. Right, he got into a fight with his commanding officer. Yeah, so this kid's a punk, right? And you know they're going back and forth. He's being very uh, disrespectful. But this is where Dan, we get that little backstory here that this private resents Justin Allard for dismissing Sergeant Philip Capet, right? A man who's become a bit of a folk hero around these parts. Yeah, he was a guy. And he was assigned <laughs> to this training company. And yeah, he's like a legend around here. And they all looked up to him and Crayon gets real mad at him, right? He's like clenching his fist now. And he's like, you're right. He was, he was the best major and, and you kicked him out for disagreeing with you. He offered to go man to man with you, but you just gave him his walking papers. He won the gold sunburst. He was a hero. That was our guy, and you kicked him out. And he has this whole little outburst, right? And Justin's like, okay, okay. He gives him a second to cool down. And this is when Justin tells him, he's like, you know, well, I know that all you boys looked up to him, and you guys would follow him into battle, and you were going to like win medals, and it was going to be a whole thing. You had all these expectations, but what you don't know is that. That mission where he won the medal because he saved all those guys. Well, actually, what if I told you that the only reason he had to save those guys is because he was the one who put them in danger? Actually, you guys don't know, but he left his authorized area because he wanted to save his family. And it was a personal matter. And he went outside of his orders and he took his men in on a, on a, on a personal mission and he ended up putting a lot of people in danger and getting people killed. Right. And Justin's also like, this is all info. No one knows this. This is just in like the report, right? This is some classified stuff, but I just wanted to give it to you straight. The thing is, so this former commanding officer, Philip Capet, he won the medal. He was like a hero. He had his own like hollow drama. And the upper brass was like, okay, we gave you a medal. You're going to retire now, right? And, but he refused to retire. So then they moved him to this training cadre that Justin's now in charge of. So this is where Justin tells Private Crayon. He's like, intelligence sources learn that Capet planned to hijack a jump ship, okay? He was going to boost a jump ship, he was going to go back and get his revenge, and he was going to take all of you guys with him, and he would probably get you all killed in the process. And when we learned this, I did. I kicked him out. And he tells him like this whole story. It's crazy. I'm just like, oh, okay, all right. I like to think that Private Cran is just sitting there with that deer in the headlights look. Yeah. He's just kind of like, oh, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> I really like, as we go through this and as we continue this conversation with Justin, I like how Stackpole managed to get like his lifetime of bullshit that he had to put up with into the very beginning here he just laid it out you get to feel it you understand it and how good he is at dealing with it and dealing with people like this young guy in front of him and it really just sets the tone to get you on his side right out the gate yeah we're gonna hit this button a lot 
you're going to have to put up with it for probably the next couple of books mm-hmm. because there's something beautiful about Stackpole's economy of storytelling. Yeah. And like Aaron said, within this chapter, you already understand kind of the cut of this man's jib. Yeah. And you're rooting for him. He's shown to be competent and he seems to care about the right things and he's no nonsense. And yeah. we get all that just from a few paragraphs. Private Crayon, to his credit, he just kind of stands there and he's like, uh, uh, he kind of turns around. He seems to legitimately appreciate Justin sharing this with him. And he's like, I understand. That makes sense. I'm ready to receive whatever punishment you see fit. Man, I didn't know, actually. I don't know. Even Justin, it, it's cool. It's like this moment where he's like, I understand, sir. I'm ready to accept my punishment now. And Justin's looking at him and he's like, you know what? This kid's all right. He wants to make an improvement. He's received new information. He's adjusted his perspective. He's not a lost cause. He doesn't double down. He yeah. could have he doubled down. You, you see a sign. It's like, okay, well. Yeah, it's cool. He like, he's like, all right, okay. I got your punishment. <laughs> he says that he's noticed that he's evidenced some leadership ability. And as his punishment, he says he's, he has to act as shepherd for all of the cadre's exercises, right? So he's kind of like team like leader position. He's got to keep them all in line, right? That's what he says. So for some context, just in case this was unclear to anyone, often in training schools, there'll be instructors who are actually in charge of different groups of people of varying appropriate ranks at a very appropriate levels. But often there will also be a student leader in these different groups. And that's what he's, that he's going to be. They'll still probably be a cadre in charge of him, but he's going to be in charge of his buddies, not being a a nuisance. Yeah. Basically he's like, yeah, he gives him more responsibility, right? He's like, yeah, it's as punishment for being a little punk standing up for (laughs) your former officer. Yeah. He like promotes him basically. And uh, that's cool. I would argue that that, initiative is the leadership qualities he's talking about sure he acted on not the right information but clearly justin's like you but you did act you were like ready to stand up for what you believe in which is a sign of uh, of the even though he was ignorant it was still nonetheless a sign of leadership and so here we are it's cool and uh crayon's just like oh thank you sir and then he turns and leaves (laughs) and so Private Crayon leaves, and then we do, we get this short bit where Justin's like taking a moment and he's like thinking to himself about why he's here and how he was assigned this duty in particular by Prince Hans Davian himself, right? He's sitting at his desk. You can see he has like a little holograph. It's like a little photo of him and Hans Davian, and he's like giving him the medal, the diamond sunburst. It's like a moment of reflection. But he also, he thinks to himself about how he was put in this role specifically because he's half Capellan. And that this world, you was a Capellan world that was retaken by the Fed Sons. I'm not sure how long ago from this point, but you know, they're still assimilating. This territory has changed hands and they needed like a liaison to the locals. And so that's why Justin was assigned here, specifically because like the native population is Capellan. Also, someone who's not going to overreact like our friend Cran here to the Capellan populace, right? This is someone who can be empathetic towards the indigs. <laughs> yeah, the indigs. And in that single stroke, we see 
Stackpole shows the wisdom of Hans Davion and Justin's ability to understand another man's like way of thinking. It's, again, an amazing economy of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So Justin's sitting there, and then this other guy comes in, right? We see, it says, a smiling man of average height and build. And he's like in the doorway. He kind of like taps on like the door frame. What you doing, bud? Kind of a thing. No, it's, uh, he's like, Major, we got to get moving, right? So this other dude comes in and we learn, okay, so this is Andy, okay? This is, this is Lieutenant Andrew Redburn. This was the guy they were talking about earlier. It's just like this the chat. Rules. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Andy strolls in. He's got the whole <laughs> neckwear thing, you know, the boots, the shorts, the cooling vest. He's got this like stack of papers, right? And Justin's like, oh, what are those? You know, more paperwork or whatever. And, you know, Andy's like, no, these, no, this is my uh, environmental impact statements. You know, for every meter of turf we have to cover during the maneuvers, we got a parade permit from the local municipal. He describes this like bureaucratic nightmare where like just to do these like simple (laughs) exercises, he's had to like fill out all this paperwork. It's like pretty funny. He's just like complaining about it. He's like, God, the local government made me like do all this crazy stuff. Oh, Justin, and they're, they, they're talking about Private Crayon, right? Because this was the guy that he got in the fight with. And Andy's like, oh, it wasn't really a fight. What is he's like, cracked him a couple good ones, got in his bread basket or something. He says bread basket. <laughs> Justin's like, right on, dude. I appreciate you. <laughs> this guy's got some 1970s yeah. Harrison Ford energy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Justin tells him that he assigned Crayon to be the shepherd. We, so we learn, oh, they're going to go out. They're going to do this exercise, right? Andy comes in and he's like, hey, you know, get suited up. You know, we're going out. We're, we're taking the mechs out. We learn that they're going to have 32 mechs with them. I was like, oh, this is actually like, that's a lot of mechs. Actually, they're going out with 32 mechs. I was like. It's, it's a solid company of mechs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Just out for a stroll. Oh, so and Andy's going to be in a spider and Justin's going to be in a Valkyrie. And he's got the only one. We he it got loaned by the local militia. It's funny, right? Because these are like Appellan guys, and he's like, you know, they only gave it to us because we told them that you because because you were going to pilot it, right? They gave it to you specifically because they said that you're a real mech warrior, and and like everyone else gets a stinger. And I'm like, oh, oh no. no, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> not the stingers. You know, we all. Yeah, this like book starts and they're like, we're going out with like 30 stingers. And I'm like, this is not going to go well. Right? This is, this is, we have learned something about stingers. Dude, it was like, yeah, it's like a horror movie to me. I'm like, no, not the stingers. Don't get it. Not all these young kids and stingers. No. (laughs) It's been beaten into us now that stingers are a red flag. (laughs) Gary. So we got these two guys, right? These two bros. These guys rule and they leave Justin's office and they head to like the mech bay. Like it specifically says it's this big arch. There's like translucent plastic used to form and seal the roof. So like the light from the sun is like streaming in and you can see like all the battle mechs here and they're like gleaming in the sunlight and all the techs and the Aztecs are all swarming around and there's cables and stuff all over the place and spare parts. It's really cool. It's like this big tent, right? Almost kind of situation. It's like really sick. The, the mechs, it's got a really nice lighting. 
it's cool and, for this shot in the movie. It's not great for enemies using satellite imagery or espionage tactics to see what's in the hangar. That was my original thought, anyway, about this. I was like, we've oh. got reports that they've got thirty <laughs> stingers in there. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> so. Andy and Justin, they get all the young mech warriors together. They have a big team meeting and they're like, all right, we're going out for an evaluation exercise. And the mechs are fully armored and powered. We're trying to minimize damage to the surrounding area, right? We, you know, we don't want to make a big mess. This is just a little exercise, right? (laughs) And I do like it says that specifically Justin, when talking about the local citizenry, he uses the word natives, not indig. And even says here he like he even brings it up. He's like, yeah, basically, I said native. It's not just because I'm half Capellan. It's because he's explaining to use the word native and not indig because indig is potentially like offensive, right? It's not a particularly sensitive word. It's kind of a harsh word. And he's like, listen, I know that there's like this weird tension, but like these are our people now. The local citizenry are are citizens of the Federated Sons. This isn't enemy territory. These are these are these are our people. They're citizens of the Federated Sons. Justin is desperately like, guys, let's not have an insurgency that's going to be a problem here. Can we yeah. just please be nice to them? Yeah. And he's trying very hard. He's <laughs> we get having difficulty. It comes up again and again in this chapter. This whole we got this whole half capellan thing going on, and then he turns it over to Andy, and Andy's like, all right. He tells everyone what they're doing. He's like, you're going to come out with me. We're going to be, you know, going over the land. We got Private Crayon on shepherd duty and uh, they all break ranks. All the guys go over and they start getting ready. They start getting in their mechs and Andy goes over. He gets in the spider. Uh, We get this little bit about the spider, twin medium snouts jutting from the center of its chest, renowned for its speed and jumping abilities. The spider's cool. I like the spider. The spider's super cool. Yeah, it's. I love if I can get my hands on one. Usually, a one will go in my recon lance. It's a great mech. The spider is cool. Let's talk about the SDR Tac Five V Spider, a thirty-ton light mech and a personal favorite of mine. The spider is one of the great light mech skirmishers of this era. With two Aberdove Mark III medium lasers, it is not very heavily armed at a glance. However, with a max speed of 130 kph from its powerful pit band 240 engine and the ability to jump 240 meters in a single bound, with a good pilot, it can outmaneuver most mechs of this era. For me, though, the icing on the cake is the fact that its two medium lasers are located in the chest, meaning a smart pilot can jump behind an enemy mech, alpha strike, and then give it the old one, two, punch. Yeah, the spider rules. Yeah, if you leave it unchecked, it can cause a lot of problems. Yeah, it's fast. Okay, so then Justin goes over, and Justin gets in the Valkyrie, right? He gets, he climbs the ladder and, like, gets in and closes the canopy. He's got an olive green neuro helmet, all right, triangular view plate. All right, so he's got this sick neuro helmet. He has one of those codes, right? He does the voice print pattern match and uh, you know the computer's like proceed with initiation sequence right and he says Jing feng tao jiao right it's like a chinese well he says it's capellan i don't um you notice they never say chinese 
they always say Capellan. And uh, so, and I don't know Chinese, but. Well, if you think about it in reference, China as a nation hasn't existed for quite some time at this point. And so it would only be referenced historically. It would be like calling English Britannian. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Okay. So that's his like code, right? It's like this like a Chinese phrase. And he's thinking to himself after he says it, after he initiates, the, the computer's like, you know, authorization confirmed. And he's like, oh, but that phrase does mean this room is too small. And <laughs> he's just thinking to himself, like, if anyone at the space found out that I had like this, like, appellan phrase, it would just make them more suspicious, right? He's like, you know, I should, <laughs> right. I should probably change that. It's like an old habit. Um, he In thinks fact, it's he funny. He takes note to do it when yeah. he gets back. And it is funny. <laughs> yeah, it is cool. I, it, it, it is oh. the coolest like initialization phrase so far. It is something that it makes you feel like he's had that conversation with himself many times before. It's like, I'm going <laughs> right. to change it when I get back. and never does. Yeah. Speaking of cool, we should probably take this time to talk about the Valkyrie. Um, Please. The Valkyrie is a recon support mech so good that the Federated Sons didn't want to share it with anyone for years. A sleek and nimble light mech. The Valkyrie is aptly named. Its harrowing curves certainly muster up the sight of a winged warrior woman coming to wisp you away to the halls of valor. The Valkyrie is commonly paired with the likes of Wasp, Stingers, Locust, and Recon Lances. Its Devastator Series 7 10-tube long-range missile launcher backed up by its Satel 9 medium laser is a pair of weapon systems that work perfectly with the Valkyrie's intended role. Recon support by fire. Its Omni-150 engine allow it to keep up the rear of light formations right where it should be, and the Valkyrie's five jump jets allow it to stay out of harm's way when singled out by most mechs, with the exception of some light mech hunters of the air, like the Phoenix Hawk. It's a good mech, and it looks good doing it too. If you can get your hands on one, it'll make a great complement to any recon lance, even to this day in the 3150s. Interesting. The Valkyrie's cool. It is a mech that I have struggled many times to make work, but Brent, I've seen you make it work many times, so... Well, it's not a mech for every use case, right? Yeah. Like I outlined here, it's good in a recon lance. It's not good if it's your only light mech, right? If you're like running kind of a mixed lance of varying different weight classes, I would argue the Valkyrie might not be your woman, but... Complemented by other light mechs, they're very good at being mutually supporting and having it be that support role within kind of these fast scouts and recon groups. I think that's really at its core where it's really good, which I would argue, even though this is a training cadre, this is a perfect example of where it would shine. As the commander of these stingers, right, he can stay kind of in the rear, use that LRM to support those stingers that are kind of on the front line. Oh, yeah. Good point. I buy it. I'm chill with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I do like you see it says he, you know, he's like in the cockpit, he's got the neuro helmet on. He says the phrase and then like all the 
control consoles like come alive, like and all the lights and the buttons like turn on and like the heat scales like initialize. You get this cool, you see like the weapon readouts like deet deet and he like puts his hands on the joysticks and like tests the buttons and stuff. Right. And so it's like, yeah, dude, he's in the Valkyrie. <laughs> and then the chapter ends. He radios Andy. He's like, he's like, ready? He's like, yes, sir. He's like, all right, let's get out of here and see what these kids have learned. You're like, okay, this is cool. A lot happened very quickly. We, you know, we started in his office and with the whole disciplining private crayon and we, and we end with him and all the guys and they're like headed out on maneuvers. Right. He gets in the Valkyrie and they're like, let's go. And you're like, okay, let's go. If I was a aspiring Battletech filmmaker, I would want to make this a crazy continuous shot from his office, like following him out to the like mech bay. <laughs> oh yeah. A one shot. All the way up to him putting like yeah. like kind of a Wes Anderson shot of him putting his neuro helmet on and like the canopy closing and you're in there in the canopy with him. <laughs> no, and I, I have a feeling already with just covering the prologue in chapter one here something we're to say a lot is stackpole's really good at getting a lot of information out very quickly taking the time to get both <laughs> narrative elements and character elements woven together to get it all out in one go and it really flows i mean like, like we were talking about earlier you're on justin's side before the first half of the chapter is concluded yeah you see a lot of potential you see a lot of competency and to contrast it with we got to watch Grayson grow into that and the Great Death Trilogy. Each step, him making mistakes to become who he ends up as in The Price of Glory, we kind of kick right into Justin in that high-functioning role. Yeah. But I feel like Stackpole has a way to get you caught up so quickly with that. They're very different pacings, and... Two things that you really even shouldn't compare against each other because of the different. I, I would argue origin. that Stackpole's able to do what you just said because he can stand on the shoulders of Keith's work, right? Yeah. Like he can literally, like we've gotten the whole like this is what it takes to kind of grow into being a competent leader and a mech warrior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we take our sweet time to get there. Now that we've done that, Stackpole's like, we don't need to do it again. Let's just go. Yeah. I think it works, though, even if you haven't done that. But I definitely think this makes it easier to just go, I get it. Let's move on. I agree completely. Justin Allard, he's cool, dude. Tall, slender. He is you know, he's got cool. like the black hair. Yeah, man. Justin Allard, you're like, here's this guy. You know, you're like, oh, man, this guy's like cool. And then you get like the, and then, and then we get like the himbo friend. Andy comes in and you're yeah. like, yes, dude, let's go. And they're like, I just like, yeah. I like to think that uh, Justin Allard, while he isn't an uptight guy, you know, his uniform, it doesn't matter how hot the office is, like it's buttoned up all the way. Yeah. And then Andy comes in and it's like unzipped. Yeah. So his like yeah. chest hairs are hanging out, totally. like the flaps kind of to the side. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he's just like, what's going on, boss? Hey, come you know, on. and it's, let's, let's get <laughs> yeah. out of here. And I love how Stackpole changed the tone immediately of right. like he had Justin Allard, the leader, the disciplinary guy. And then you got, oh, now we get Justin Allard, the guy who gets to relax back and be like, oh, uh, just got done talking with that guy. You roughed up a bit. <laughs> How'd that go for you? And how they're able to kick their feet up so quickly. And he handled that transition wonderfully. It rules. Good chapter. But yeah, I mean, right away, like we're about to get some mech action. Well, we got 32 mechs 
they're like, let's take them out. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to be, all right, we're like right into it. Let's go. 32 yep. mechs. Chapter two, we are in cockpit. <laughs> yep. Right? Like we are, like, we are in a mech. Yeah. He's like, they were taking out like 30, like, like Stackpole is like, check it out, dude. Like chapter one, it's like 30 some stingers. You're like, oh, let's go. Like it's about to get wild. I do like that the word shepherd is the word that's used for like the student team leaders because you're like, oh yeah, that's a lot of stingers. (laughs) Shepherd does feel appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll have to see how the parade of stingers fares in the next chapter. Chapter two. So we're still following Justin and the gang, right? The chapter starts with like Justin, he's in his Valkyrie overlooking like this meadow. There's like this valley, you know, it's very nice, like grasslands. There's like this valley rim. They're out there. And, uh, you know, Justin's overlooking all the different lances because there's like all these several lances. And uh, you see him out there and he's watching them conduct themselves. And he's just like, okay, excellent. Like, wow, they're really doing really good. He like calls over to Andy and he's like, hey, pull these guys in a little bit. They're getting a little out there. This is where one of his privates though, Private Sonak, calls in and says he's getting odd mag scan readings, right? And we learn about, okay, magnetic scanning, right? Because mechs are like made of metal. You can scan for like large concentrations of metal and like anything might come back. You know, it could be a mech. Sonic says he's getting a mag scan reading and, you know, he doesn't get an identification, but it like pings on like the radar. Justin's like, oh, interesting. He's like a little blue hexagon, right? On his like mini map. And he's like, hold on. So Justin calls over to Andy and he's like, hey, you hang out here with the guys. I got to go check something over this hill, right? Because that's where that weird reading was coming from. So Justin takes the Valkyrie and he goes, says, you know, it takes him a minute to get over there. He's got to like go over this hill. He has to go to the next like, like grid on the map, right? He's got to go to the next like quadrant over. It's cool, right? He crests this hill and we get this scene. He's like looking down, it's like this beautiful, like wooded veil with like a stream, like running through it. And there's like a pond. It's like so nice. And there's like this line, you know, this like, tree line there's like this forest and justin's like yeah this is oh wow this is so peaceful and dangerous right because he's like look at this and actually justin's looking over at this tree line and like the stream and he's like oh this is an incredible ambush location he's like now wait a minute and like as soon as he's like thinking about it that's when Andy radios him and he's like, Major Allard, cicadas, they're all over the place. And you're like, oh no, cicadas, they're all over the place. Like not the cicadas. cicadas. Yeah. Andy's like, sir, there's like, there's, there's all these cicadas. And Justin's like, you got to withdraw south, Andy. And he's thinking, he, he's like, they can't come this way, right? This is probably the trap, right? And Andy's and like private crayon, Raise him and, and he's like, negative, negative. I've got, you know, enemy readings to the north, the east, and the south. Only to the west, sir, the way that you went. That's like the only way out. And Justin's like, oh, it's definitely a trap, right? They're trying to flush these stingers. And then as soon as he's like thinking about it, Justin's like mini map goes off. 
uh, he actually gets a reading, right? The little blue hexagon, the like, the, like inf- the target information fills in and he's like, oh, it's a rifleman, right? And you're like, oh no. Like, yeah, his little thing is like, dude, dude, like rifleman. And so he raised, he's like, no, you can't come this way. You know, do what you can, Andy. Do what you can. I, I got to take care of something. It's a trap. Don't run west. They're trying to push them all towards this rifleman because yeah. the rifleman grossly outtons like yeah. everything here. Yeah. However, we should take a moment and talk about the cicadas in this equation because we haven't seen a cicada before. We got cicadas here. What are they? The cicada is another 40 ton mech. And for a medium mech, I would say that the cicada is not really that good on paper. As a medium mech. However, I would argue it's an exceptional light mech. And as long as you compare it to the likes of a Locus, which was its direct competitor during the era of the Star League, its Pitban 320 engine means it can match speeds with the Locust, so it's fast, right? And it's two Magna medium lasers are backed up by a Magna 200 small, which means it can even outgun the 1E Locust 2. Is it worth the 2,192,817 C build difference? I suppose that's up to the end user, but one last note, I think the design cues really do make the name fitting. There's something about this mech that really does make me think of a cicada. I think... It's those two antenna up on that kind of dome top piece. What do you guys feel about cicadas? Dude, the cicada's cool. Yeah. It's the mech that's like most like the geckos in Metal Gear Solid 4. <laughs> that's true. Right? It kind of reminds me of that kind of design. It's got these big long legs. And this yeah. Kind of, it's, uh, yeah, the cicadas are cool. I like that name too. It's a good name, cicada. Well, it also, Brent, as you pointed out, it being a medium mech, Makes it so when you try to play it as a medium mech, it doesn't do well. But no. when you're playing it as a light mech, it can move fast enough and take enough shots to make it worth being there. Yes. When, when you're agree. using them, really feel the impact of it. Yeah. If you try and use it like a medium mech in medium mech lines, it's not going to be your friend. But if you throw it in a recon lance because you have one, it's going to do great. It would pair nicely with the Valkyrie. Unfortunately, that's not what we're dealing with here. That's not the fight we're looking to see here. Interesting. <laughs> so we cut over to Andy, right? He's like trying to listen in. He hears Justin tell Private Crayon not to come west, but he's like, okay, slow down, Andy. Get a grip. All right. He left it in your hands. We got this. But then, right, we get to see the cicadas emerge from like his perspective. It says they like come out of the ground, right? That's what it says. It's almost like they were hidden underground and they like emerge from the earth to the, and they're like, they, they surround them on all, like all sides. They're like down this valley and like all along the rim. Only again, only the West stood open. And so Andy's like, come on, move. Like, let's go West. It is sad because the guy who got the mag scan reading private Sonak, he gets killed like immediately. Uh, he gets lasered and um, his cockpit explodes. It's very sad. Private Sonak is the first to die. It does make sense, though, because that means he was the close enough to get the reading. He was. Yeah. It makes sense that he's the first one to really get hit real hard. So, first mech gone is a stinger. <laughs> the cicada versus the stinger, I'm putting money on 
Now, you know, if we're just talking 1v1, I'm putting money on the Cicada. If they really want to do some damage to the Cicada, they're going to have to work together. So it says the Cicada just shoots twin medium lasers at the Stinger's head, and he kills him in one hit. That's what it says. <laughs> yeah. Is that very, Can he very do that? Is that? Does that work? Yeah. One medium laser will get you through the exterior armor, and, and then another one will get you through the internal structure. So yes, it is very possible for this to happen. So right away, I'm excited. Because I get what I came here for. The first instance of mech combat in this book is a stinger getting shot in the head <laughs> and getting its like, cockpit exploded in like one shot, right? Two medium lasers. That's all it took. I think that's so funny. No, I, it, it makes it worth the price of admission right there. It's like first thing we see, a stinger goes down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, shout outs to uh, Private Sonak. He got that mag scan reading. And uh, we'll never forget you. Oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> we also learned that the cicadas, a, a few of them brought flamethrowers, right? They have flamers. They're shooting flamers right. at the stingers. They're all freaking out. Andy thinks, he's like, okay, there's about a dozen of them, but they look like they're decent pilots. But we outnumbered them significantly. He does point out there's only like a dozen of them. And he did have like 30 stingers, right? So... He's like, okay, pull back. Let's get above them. All right. And so. So that means we have Cicada 2As and 2Bs. Exactly. He gets on the radio and this little bit ends with like him being like rallying the troops. Like, all right, we're going to hit him from behind. Let's go. And then we cut back to Justin, right? He's running in the Valkyrie. He's running towards the woods, right? Because he's got his like reading on his computer. He says, oh, there's a rifleman right behind these trees. And so he's running, he shoots a bunch of missiles at the trees, the trees like explode, it like reveals the riflemen standing behind them, like he like hits them with the missiles, and it's like, you know, we see the riflemen, it's like swiveling over, he's got the big auto cannons and like the lasers and like the little radar thing on top, right? And uh, he starts shooting at Justin, right? He's hitting with a boom, 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 he's got the cannons going, we got the big shells ejecting, and Justin like... He's coming towards him, right? He like hits his jump jets, you know, he like kind of jumps over. He like manages to dodge like the first like volley of fire from like the rifleman. He like jump jets over him. It's very cool, right? We get this sick scene. Justin like hits the ground and like she, they're shooting missiles. He's like shooting LRMs at him. Oh, it, it is cool. He hits one of the autocannon ejection ports with his missile and... Oh, he, right. And he also hits that radar thing, just like in Mercenary Star. He mm -hmm. hits that uh, little yes. thing, the, um, oh, the I think D2J it was the D2J. Yes. Yep. yes. Yeah, he manages to knock, he manages to knock out the D2J, dude. Look at you two, the D2J. <laughs> I'm proud of you guys. It's awesome. Yeah, he hits him with the missiles in this little section. It's like, you know, Justin, he's like circling around the riflemen. They're now like, you know, closing in on each other. And then... We jump back to Andy Redburn, right? And he's got the troops and he's like, all right, just like we outlined it. Remember, they don't have jump jets. Go. And then we see like a bunch of the stinger lances, like they all use their jump jets and they like go up and they like jump behind the line of cicadas, right? And like Andy's like, ha ha, like you thought you were fighting trainees. Ha ha. But we are actually quite good. <laughs> Andy literally uses the Uno reverse card. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so we get this scene. The stingers and the cicadas are shooting at each other. 
You know, they managed to do some sick, they're like blowing their legs off and stuff. They're like melting their leg armor. And, uh, but we get this entire like little battle scene between like all the lances of the stingers and like the cicadas. They do pretty good. I think a few of them right here managed to get taken out. You see like some of the stingers go down. But it is cool. We get this really cool little battle scene where they're just like the stingers jump behind them and they're like ramming each other and stuff and like shooting lasers and whatnot. It's like it's all very cool. They're just like they're totally like laying into these cicadas. Right. And then we cut back to Justin. OK, he's like running circles around the rifleman, you know, and they're like shooting at each other. And he's thinking, oh, but it's OK because it, it's torso twist like locks up after like 40 degrees. I'm trying to get into its rear arc. So he's like doing the circle strafing, trying to like get around him. And as soon as he starts to get into the rear arc, he's like, okay, cool. This is where we learn that Justin Allard doesn't have the pilot skill human TRO. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very funny. So Justin's like, all right, I just got to get into its rear arc. And then as soon as he does, he's like, wait, what's it doing? And it starts turning the other way. And then it's like he sees that the rifleman like flips his guns like all the way around, right? So now those big guns are pointing backwards. And Justin's like, oh, no, like this is actually the worst possible position to be in. <laughs> and so he like hits his jump jets, right? And he like starts taking off. And he's like, no, not like this. Yeah, this little section, the rifleman just swings its weapons around and just like scythes laser fire through the Valkyrie's legs and just like messes it up. It says that Justin, like he doesn't even manage to hardly get off the ground. And then before we can even see what happens, we go back to Andy and the cadets. They're just like slicing these cicadas. They're having all these exchanges. It's very cool. And then they realize that the cicadas begin to like retreat, right? They're like, oh, they're backing away, Lieutenant. Andy like looks down and he's like, let them run, cadets. Couldn't even catch them if we wanted to. And he's like, dang. So they do a good job. They manage to hold off the cicadas. They do take some damage, however. They pay for it. The enemy here clearly didn't want this outcome to happen, right? The enemy's goal was to use the cicadas to push them into this rifleman's line of fire and just for them to get eaten alive, right? Like, that's clearly what the goal was here. Yes. And they brought a enough mechs to do just that, but they didn't have enough mechs for a stand-up fight. If you reverse engineer this whole thing, it makes sense that they would plan accordingly this way. They would be like, we want to take as minimal units as we can so that we can take out like this group, Why, for whatever reason they're taking them out, right? And we want to confuse them. They're cadets. So it's unlikely that the cadre and leadership will push these guys for a stand-up fight. They're going to want to get them off the X. And the leadership here made pretty much the only right decision, which was give them the stand-up fight and force them to retreat and deal with the losses that inevitably will come from that. Yes, they do good. They lose several. I, th I think they lose like three or four cadets and the when andy calls in and all the lance leaders call in they're like you know their status reports and some of them are fine but like one lance lost two mech warriors like one lance lost another one it's very sad but yeah and then like andy's like oh yeah what about major allard you know he's like he's like major allard what about you and then like somebody gets in like i never saw him come back in the battle and he's like huh so 
And remember, he went west where he told yeah. nobody else to go. Yeah, yeah. So Andy's like, oh, weird. And he's not radioing in. Yeah, so Andy takes his spider and he goes to the west where he saw uh, Justin go. And then as soon as he goes over the hill, he sees like smoke rising from like the burning trees in the distance. And he's like, oh no, what happened? We like do like a short little cut where it's like Andy and Robert Crayon are like over at the wreckage of the Valkyrie, right? And they're like pulling, they're like prying open the cockpit. What happened? So like, oh no, the Valkyrie is just like a wreck. In, you know, like over by the trees, you know, they're like kicking the glass. It's just like, you know, spider webbed glass. It's very cool. And they managed to pry open the cockpit and it's like, oh, it's Justin. And he's like still in the chair. They like check his pulse. Like he's alive. And it's like, I think he should be able to live. And then uh, it's funny because this is where Crayon's he, like. He should live if he gets medical attention. Soon. Yes, yes, yes. And then Crayon's like, oh, are you sure we ought to, sir? And then Andy's like, what? I think I like Andy's like, are you suggesting that a good compelling is a dead one? And Rand's like, no, God, no, sir. That's not what it, he's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he's like, but sir, his arm. And then Andy like leans over to like the left side. He like leans over to the other side where like Crayon is standing and he's like Blake's blood. And he looks down and Crayon. Yeah. He's like his, his arm, sir, from the elbow down, it's gone. And Andy sees that Justin has lost his arm in the crash. Hook, line, and sinker, right? Like, right yeah. there, chapter ends, bam. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, no. Yep. Let's go. What does this mean for Justin? Yeah. Is is Justin a major player? Like, you immediately like this guy. You're like, is he done? What a great setup. Yeah, and you just, you feel that Stackpole knew that he had set the hook here. Like, yep. and he's ready to reel you in. And I I love that. I mean, this whole chapter is really a huge battle. I mean, there's a lot of units on the board right now. As soon as we start. Now, we have seen this many units at play in the Grey Death Legion novels, but we haven't seen it all narrated out quite to the extent this was, right? Yeah. We're focused on this Lance here and what's going on. That group over there is doing whatever. This, we kind of get this whole ensemble. We get a little bit from everyone. And to keep up with our trend, and definitely not the last of our comparisons as we compare Decision at Thunder Rift with the Warrior series here, this combat, as it moves so quick to cover all of that, and Decision at Thunder Rift, Keith really liked to keep you down in the trenches. And through the combat, you really felt all of it. You got each movement of everybody involved. And so it was a really kind of micro-focused version of the combat. And we got great combat in there. But I really like what Stackpole does in contrast here, which is he brings like a John Madden sports announcer energy. It's the highlights. Yeah. yeah. Where it's just like, it's all the good stuff. and he's just like over here we got the cicadas coming out of the ground lasers are firing we're yeah. popping back over to the valkyrie and the rifleman yeah <laughs> see him coming in boom them legs are gone <laughs> back over to the cicadas and i i just feel like he was able to convey all of that action you lose some of that detail you got with keith but you covered this whole combat in half of a chapter and you get all the high points and all the low points. It's like it's like lower resolution, but it's like, oh, I still got everything. 
right? Yeah. I got all the info. I'm like, oh, I know what happened. Yeah. And I just feel like that's something stepping into these two different trilogies with two different authors. It, you're really getting a checkbox for everyone. There's going to be somebody's exact favorite combat style as we continue in these books because everybody's bringing a different flavor and it both keeps them separate but tethers everything together so neatly into BattleTech, which I think is amazing. I mean, after I read this chapter, I was just so excited to keep going. I think Stackpole, we're going to eventually get Stackpole's opinion of mech combat in these books <laughs> in kind of a fourth wall break that I won't spoil here, but I find pretty funny. <laughs> I can't believe that the rifleman can shoot behind itself, right? What a twist. <laughs> he's it's like oh my god he's gonna like get behind him you're like yes and the rifleman's like i can flip the guns behind me and you're like oh no dude he can flip the guns behind him that's so powerful i feel like right? it was a twist in the 90s and for readers that are coming to the books like kind of as their pathway through BattleTech, i think it's surprising now but it is one of those things where it's like if you've been playing the board game and then you read this book you're like yeah the rifleman anything without lower arm actuators and hand actuators can flip its arms he forgot well, that the rifleman can shoot behind <laughs> dude I, I do feel like it captures one of the universal experiences that you have when you're playing the board game early on where That's you true. get that moment that you're so excited you got the rear arc and you're yeah. like, you're going to get it now. And then it comes to firing and someone across from you says, I flip my arms and you go, <laughs> what do you mean? And they go, you can flip arms. Sir, is that legal? <laughs> and the <laughs> like... next thing you know, your light mech isn't there anymore. But you can't do this in the video game, though, right? I think the reason we can't do it in the video game is because <laughs> it turns out when you have to figure out, like, what is the screen that shows, like, your rear arc look like coming up on your cockpit? Uh, like, it's like, oh, that's really complicated to do something that's, like, in actuality, pretty novel <laughs> at best. <laughs> and so I think... I think it's one of those things that's just like, you know. Could, could you imagine how crazy it would be to have work with forward-facing guns? And, you know, we know we're, they're running with, like, joysticks, essentially. And then right. all of a sudden you're looking off to the side in a small, like, capture screen. And you're like, oh, it's behind me. And now everything's inverted. And yeah. you've got to shoot a light mech that's run up behind you. W listen, with training, I think I think it's possible, right? I don't think it's like impossible. I just think means. it's really cool that <laughs> riflemen can shoot behind it is like a major plot point in this yes. book. Yes, yes. It it's even, true. Dude, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. It comes up again. It's it's it, it literally it's so funny dude this is like this is this is the book that's all about how the rifleman can shoot behind it yeah. <laughs> it's rules it's a real nothing personal kid <laughs> actually it's kind of the counter to nothing personal kid isn't yeah. it yeah. i guess in the inverse meme universe yeah. is this the second uno reverse yeah. card of the night mccall never shot behind him he didn't. <laughs> McCall always seems like a man looking forward, so we yeah, can't hold it against him. Is. He definitely doesn't look up. 
<laughs> it's all like the cave. Scottish people can't look up. <laughs> Dogs and Scottish people. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy though, man. He loses his arm. And we're like, man, what's going to happen now? Well, it seems like his mech warrior piloting is behind him. Maybe. On account of you need those two joysticks. Oh, that's true. It is sad though. Like it's like we get introduced to Justin, we're like, this guy's cool. And then immediately he gets in like this tragic accident. It's like very sad. And he's run off to the West and his guys didn't know where he was. And he got blown up by the rifleman. I mean, it just goes to show. Don't get behind the rifleman. We'll have to see if there's anyone out there that can lend Justin Allard a hand in the next chapter. Chapter three. So now we're on Pacifica in the Isle of Skye, Lyran Commonwealth, 15th of January, 3027. Okay. So in the last one was in November, 3026. So it's like a couple months later. And this is where we are introduced to Captain Daniel Allard of the Kelhounds. Okay. It's a mercenary unit. And this is cool. We get the Kelhounds, dude. The Kelhounds. A storied mercenary unit. Yes. It's cool. So he's out here. They're out on Pacifica. If you recall, a, a mercenary company notated in the prologue. That's right. They mentioned the Kelhounds. Good point. And so we get this really cool scene, right? Dan Allard, he's out with his lance. They're on like a patrol. You know, they're on this planet. He's in a Valkyrie. All right. He has a teammate, Eddie Baker. He's in a Jenner. And they're out in a storm. It does say that the weather is like terrible. It makes out a point because he's out here with this Lance on patrol. And we also, I do get, we get a little geological here. Stackpole's <laughs> like, I want to talk about this planet. All right. Char three, AKA Pacifica, right? It's very stormy. We learn a little bit about their day cycle, right? A little bit about how their rotation is uh, faster than standard. Um, you know, a TST hour might be shorter than a, a standard or metric hour, but Pacifica's fast spin gave it a 35-minute hours, and I'm like nodding along, right? Because we just read three William H. Keith Jr. books. <laughs> you know, I like braced myself. I was like, ah, oh, here it comes. Yes, I'm prepared for the next several pages. But no, he just he just gives us like a paragraph. He's real like in and out with it. He's like, hey, you get it. It's like the days are faster. Uh, anyway. Uh, and I was like, oh, I was like, wow, I was kind of shocked. I was expecting I was more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it really does show. I was like, man, if this was like in a, in a key joint, this would have been like a whole page. He would have like broke it down to like, uh, I, I thought that was funny. I thought that when I was reading this, I love it. I'm not talking trash. I think it's great. <laughs> but yeah, they're out here, right? Weather's terrible. And he's talking to his lance. He's like, all right, we're done here. I got to get back to the staff meeting. Let's head back. So they're like heading back to the base, right? And we get this funny bit. I like Dan is like watching the Jenner run and he makes, he's like, oh yeah, they totally call it the ugly duckling. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't, it says that. He's like, yeah, the Jenner, everyone calls it the ugly duckling. And I'm like, that is funny. I love you, Jenner. It's okay. <laughs> You're beautiful in my eyes. Yeah. 
But you're like, oh yeah, the Jenner is ugly. <laughs> and he has another lancemate with him, Lang. She's in a wasp, but we learn that she's used to a locust, right? She just got this wasp. This comes to be a bit of a plot point. Yeah. And then he's talking to Brand about how Lang's she still needs time to get used to the wasps like higher profile. Yeah. He's talking to his other lancemate, Austin Brand. Right. They're having this conversation. They're talking about that other pilot, Megan Lang, right? The one in the wasp. And they're talking about how Dan's like, oh, she's probably angry with you because, you know, she thinks you cost her the locust. And they're like, oh, okay. So uh, Meg Lang, she lost her locust like recently. Now she's in the wasp. She's getting used to it. It seems like maybe Austin Brand had like a hand in it. We get this whole little, like, we get this little character introduction. There's like a nice little, like, thing going on here a few paragraphs we have an entire like group of interpersonal relationships and like this whole little small story and you can fill in the blanks right you're like i wonder what did austin brand do to like mess up so bad and get the locust destroyed but like everything else you're kind of like oh, okay we get like clearly they're close they're going through some troubles but all in all they seem like a bunch of pals yeah it's cool they're going back to the base all right, we see in the distance, we have like the Lou and Overlord class dropship. It's like the big egg style. Yes. Uh, and they also have a leopard class, the Manan and McClear. All right, so we get like, we get this cool scene, right? It's like a storm. They're like, they like go, yeah, they go back to the base. There's like the red and black dropships. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like really cool. It's like raining. And they roll up in the mech bay, right? And Dan gets out of the Valkyrie. He goes on the ladder and he sees Meg, right? And she's like yelling at the tech, like, we need to make this wasp more maneuverable. My locust could run rings around this thing, you know? And uh, she's talking to the tech. I love the tech. Jackson, it's like a, a, he's like a man with thick legs. He like slams his keyboard on the ground and the papers like poof, explode everywhere. And he's like, this isn't a locust. I can't make it do that. It's very funny. We get this scene where she's like yelling at the tech and he, and he sees Dan and he's like, sorry, captain. And Dan's like, he pulls her aside and he's like, I need a word with you. So he takes Meg aside. Right. And he's like, let's talk about something. And uh, I like they're leaning up against the leg of the Thunderbolt. It says that, you know, he yeah. like walks her over and they're like post up next to the Thunderbolt and they're like sitting on the foot. That's cool. He's like, what's going on? She's like, it's a Lieutenant Brand. I don't know how to react around him. And Dan's like, ah, I was afraid of this. And he's like, Meg, you got to understand, he feels really responsible for when you lost your locust. I don't know if you know it, but he pulled extra duty to like get revenge, basically. He's like, when he heard that the Raiders who blew your thing up, he like went out with the jump infantry and like he even went out one day and like captured your new one and everything. He tried his best to like make up for it. I know you're probably like, Still really mad at him, but you know, he feels really bad about it. Uh, he tried really hard. I, Dan's kind of yeah. like, listen, the guy's done his canuppance, right? Like, maybe let him off the hook <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And then Meg's, you know, Meg's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, what? Yeah, she's like, sir, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. And then Dan's just like, you know, just like head scratching. Just like, huh? <laughs> like, well, what are you talking about? Because Dan seems like a smart man, and yeah. it also seems like, from our perspective, it's like, well, that's what we read. Most people are going to read what's <laughs> happened this way. I like that you immediately, like, Stackpole puts you in Dan's position. 
Yeah. yeah. Because you're confused. You're like, wait, well, then what is this about? <laughs> yeah. And Dan, like, he, like, puts his hand on her shoulder and he's like, he's like, I look, I know the locusts belonged in your family. I love that Stackpole throws in the little line, the things they never bothered to teach <laughs> yeah. me at the New Avalon Military Academy. Uh, as soon <laughs> as he's like, I've, I'm lost. Please help me understand what's happening now. Exactly. And she tells him, well, well, first she's like, yes, the locust was in my family. And like my father abandoned my mother when I was young. And both my mother and my grandmother made me promise never to like get mixed up with like a mech warrior. But like, that's the problem, Captain. Austin's been so nice to me. Like, I think we're like, I'm like starting to fall for him. And I think he's starting to fall for me. <laughs> I'm feeling conflicted because of my promise to my like mother and uh, about having like lovers. And like, Dan's just like, oh man. Oh, man. <laughs> he's, just, like, I don't... he's like looking around, you know, he's like drowning. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, listen, listen. Okay. Okay. First of all, we don't have any rules about like relationships within the we can't police that. It's like, that would be stupid. And he's like, first of all, you know, it makes sense. It's it's fine. You guys are healthy. The weather's crazy here. <laughs> he you immediately know, goes dad mode. Yeah. Right? yeah. With the exception of he's like, what else is there to do on this thunderstruck like <laughs> rock yeah. anyway, but have a little fun. It really hit me with like uncle energy. Yes, and it's like Un- a niece a or nephew came up and it was like, can we have the talk? And he's like, I don't know. I <laughs> am I allowed? I, uh, is this is something? This my job? Is this my thing? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I guess I'll try to walk the middle of the road the best I can. <laughs> he does all right. He does. He does his best. <laughs> I love the line in there. Stackpole throws in. Dan shut his eyes and grimaced. Here I am, only 28 years old, and she's making me feel like a grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> and. To me, it just, it it really reads, like, after everything we just went through in the last chapter, opening this up with Dan, as you said, Brent, earlier, you really get to feel the Kellhounds here all together. And then Dan immediately winding up in this situation. It, it's just like a little, like a little breather you needed to get caught up with everything. And it puts you right back into his character. Like, you, you really understand him as well through all of this. Right. Yeah. Again, quick and breezily, yep. right? It's like, oh, I get it. Dan, he's this guy. He's a little different from his brother. There's some similarities, but there's some differences. Yeah. And you all, you kind of get it all organically. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the ambiance of this opening scene of like the thunder and lightning and them like yeah. on patrol in the mud yeah. and like the Jenner's like feet getting stuck in the mud and like the thunderbolts like slugging through and it's just yeah. like and then the, they're coming into friendly lines right and there's it's like this like fortress and you can see like the doors opening and then like the turrets like kind of moving it's so cool. that they're not aiming at friendly units and then you've got like the shot on the drop ships it's yeah. sick it is <laughs> If you don't think this is cool, why are you still here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then to flow right into this scene with it, where you have this very, like, ominous, but you have that full, like you said, ominous setup. And then we're right here into this comedic Interpersonal comedic moment (laughs) where Dan's trying to defuse what he thought 
was like a like disagreement between something that was his job to something <laughs> to does, that isn't like, actually being sexual. He tells tension. her. <laughs> he tells her he's after she tells him what's going on. He's like, "Look, Meg, my father's first marriage. You know, he got a divorce, and uh, he did it again. He got married." <laughs> And he's like, and if he hadn't, you, you know, then he had me. So uh, and I'm like, what? <laughs> he's drowning, man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> However, we it is a clever way for if you didn't already connect the dots via surname, you do kind of get a moment where you're like, oh, aha, this guy's yeah. related to Justin. To Justin. Yeah. Yeah. And she asked him, she's like, oh, your brother's a major in the Capellan March. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like <laughs> he says I remember he's like he's my older brother and and then he stands up which <laughs> shows to us to the viewers that he's like tall right he's like clearly right. taller than he, he's like but I'm his big brother <laughs> and again immediately like oh we get their relationship yeah. yeah, and they both stand up and laugh, and it's like, ha ha, thanks, Captain, I appreciate it. And he's like, sure. And the chapter ends, he like looks at his watch, or no, there's a clock. He like sees the clock, and he's like, oh, the meeting, gotta go. Yeah. And he like runs out of frame. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. See him like looking up at the clock, like mopping sweat, and he's like, oh, perfect. <laughs> Get me out of here. Yeah. It's- it's it's so funny. And I, I love how Stackpole makes you love these two characters right off the bat, but in very different ways. Like, it isn't yeah. the same beat twice. Even, like, the guys that aren't focused here, like, even, like, Baker and stuff, I'm like, oh, these guys are all cool. I, like, I get them. I'm like, oh, this guy's like this. And yeah, immediately I'm like, okay. Yeah, you get a sense of everything that's going on. And Stackpole just does a great job getting you right there. And this is something where it... Uh, Stackpole really keeps up momentum because we won't say that it has to be tension the whole time. He isn't relying on just tension. Right. He's just keeping momentum going to the point where as I'm reading it, I'm like flipping to that next chapter and it's not even really registering me that I've hit like a chapter break. Like it's like, oh, get through it. Keep going. He definitely uses intrigue. He'll throw the intrigue like he knows you know that you want to know what the hell is about to happen to these guys because he he's so good at making you like these people immediately. Yeah. So he's like, you're engaged. I know you're engaged. Let's just get on with it. And you're yeah. Like, yeah let's. let's. And, and he chose that point when he's got you on the hook for it that he sets up the as you said that ominous intro to this chapter. And everything that's going on, and you're like, you're ready to hear it. And then he chooses to release the tension. Yeah. And I think that's done really, really well. But it's still there in the back, right? Yeah. He's kind yeah. of just waiting it, it hovering forgotten. over everything. But, yeah. but still, it's like, oh, we get this tonal shift. But I like by right at the end of the chapter, Stackpole takes the moment to reel you right back in by throwing you, – you could, through name recognition, know that they were family. But by the end, he's like, by the way – we're close. And yeah. it's right yeah. back to like, oh, no, Justin's in trouble. Dan hasn't heard. Yeah, He he says a lot through just leaving it to you to infer it. He yeah. assumes that the reader is smart enough to get it. Yeah. And yeah. he moves on. He's got to go to the staff meeting as well. He's late. He's, <laughs> He's late, late for a very important <laughs> date. And it is funny. It just ends with him like, oh, got to go. Phew. And you're like, okay. And we'll have to find out how important the staff meeting is in the next chapter. 
chapter four. So we're still in Pacifica. We're still with Dan Allard. All right. He's running to the command center. I like this. You get the scene where he's like changing as he's running, like pulling off his cooling vest and his like mech warrior gear and stuff. He stops, he like throws it in the laundry or whatever. He gets a pair of like coveralls, right? And he's like, you see him, he's like zipping them up as the elevator goes up. He's like just zipping it as like the doors open, right? So he goes up, he gets this door, right? We learn, oh, this is, he's going to meet with Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Kell, okay? This is, this is the guy in charge of the Kellhounds, right? It's like a staff meeting and he knocks on the door, okay? And then they're like, enter, all right? So like Dan goes in, okay? And so now we're in Colonel Kell's private office. It's cool. There's like a center table and like to Dan's left, a bank of windows look out on the creek, like lightning clouds. You see like there's all these windows and the storm is like brewing in like the distance. There's like a sofa here. So there's like a battered brown vinyl sofa. This It's like, oh, it's probably left behind by the last Merck company to pull duty here. And you're like, oh, that's funny. You know, they were like, should we bring the sofa? You know, and they're like, nah, I'll leave it. <laughs> like, just, we'll, you know, we'll get another one. It's fine. Kellhound show up. They're like, sick free sofa. Yeah. I, uh, this happens all the time. This is very realistic. Thank you, Stackpole. <laughs> oh, it says, yes, left behind by the last mercenary company to pull duty or due time. <laughs> as as it had become known on station, <clears throat> it provided seating for the only NCO. And I love in this scene how just Stackpole takes the moment to once again let you infer that like he's running up, he's knocking on the door, and that it's Patrick Kells. And you're like, it, it establishes for you that Dan isn't in some like offshoot branch on the Kellhound Mercenary Unit roster list here. No. He's definitely higher up He's in this going organization. To meet the man. And yeah. You, yeah. And you get this, you're like, oh, a Lieutenant Colonel Patrick M. Kell. This is a man of authority. He's late. He's about to get an ass chewing. If I've seen any kind of military or even just battle tech story thus far, this man's yeah. due for an ass chewing for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Dan comes in and like Colonel Kell is there. He's got the black hair cropped, thin scar from the left temple to the crown of his head. He's got like a sick scar. Does say scar might have been ominous if Kell's easy smile, gleaming brown eyes, and handsome features did not instantly create the urge to call this man friend. So he's not a mean looking guy, it says. But yeah, you're right. It's like, oh, it's like tense. It's like, oh, he's going to be late. And then he looks over at Colonel Kell and Kell gestures at this chair and he's like, we began the meeting without you. And then Dan's like, yes. And then like the camera pans over and you see that they're all like playing poker. It's like, yeah, I'll raise you 20, you know, like slides in. They all have, There's like, like poker all of a sudden you like, you didn't see the smoke billowing from over by yeah. the door. But now yeah. that the shot has like moved over, you're like, oh, the room's full of like cigar smoke. And like, yeah. <laughs> like, it's all like, like the junior officer is like 40 to me. I'm out. You know, I fold. <laughs> Somebody yeah. like hands him like a hand of cards. You're like, oh, this rules. <laughs> it, it, it's so funny. It is just something that as soon as it's like, and I believe it's my bet. And it's just yeah. like, oh, everything just yeah. just <laughs> washes free. All that all that tension. Once again, Stackpole just releases you into the bit. And I hope that this is something where all throughout the Great Death Trilogy, we had our favorite Keith joke structure, which was explain over pages 
just to have a simplified sentence and say, <laughs> and that's why he missed. And it, is it got us every time. There. Yep. But this yep. this is like the same like build up tension to just release you. And I hope he keeps up with it because this part got me. <laughs> yeah. It has like, dude, the scene rules with like with like the snappy dialogue. You know, he like he he like sits down and like the girl next to him like, glad you could join us. And he's like, said the shark to her dinner. Right, Annie? <laughs> and then and then you know, she's like, I do recall some discussion of your skillet leaving money on the table, Captain. <laughs> and, like, yes. and then he looks over a cat, right? And that's the dude sitting on the sofa. Okay. Yeah. Sergeant the only Clarence, NCO at the meeting. Yes. Sergeant Clarence Cat Wilson. Aaron, how much do you love this character? <laughs> <laughs> immediately yes dude immediately <laughs> if he happened to be in a mech i would throw out my nomination so this it we it has mentioned him he does pilot a marauder i do believe it says that this is the he, yeah yeah he got up before noon on his on his day off it said that that's true i didn't bring it up yeah he's got like the head he's he's, he's got like the shaved head heck yeah dude cat wilson dude this guy rules He's just over there on the couch. I do like it talks about like the suits of their cards are like the yeah. are like four great houses, specifically four. They like leave out the Capella Confederation. It yeah. says that. <laughs> yeah. like, I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> it even made me think, I'm like, is this some kind of mercenary deck of cards? You know, there's no way that everyone plays with the four. That'd be weird. It's like, oh, it's like four countries. It's yeah. like, you know, our cards aren't like Canada, Mexico. Yes, you know it isn't like. <laughs> well, you also uh, don't have like five interstellar nation states here. You know, yeah, it is more convenient when there's only five flavors, kind of. I like to believe that Stackpole set this up as this is the mercenary special where yeah, <laughs> you get to vent a little steam of working for that's the great what made houses. Me think, that's that's what I thought. I was like, I bet these are like a mercenary. They have like I, I, oh, yeah, I bet is. people buy these and use them for target practice and yeah. all kinds of uh, things. Put them in your generous spokes. <laughs> so they're playing this card game. It's very cool. It's like, oh, they're like, I'll call, like, I'll fold and whatnot. They're just all sitting there. They're like chatting about, they've been on here for a while. Dan's talking to Colonel Kell. He's like, you know, Eddie Baker was hoping he could use your influence with your cousin, the Archon, to get us some real duty. And then Patrick is like, cousin-in-law, Dan, you know, I'll mention it the next time Katrina stops in for a beer. And you're like, oh, Interesting. He does point out that, like, there is some relation between the Kell family and the Steiner family. So you're like, oh, yeah, these are, like, real, like, hardcore, like, Steiner loyalist type of uh, situation going on here. Yeah. Which makes sense. So before this, they were, as noted in the prologue, before this, the Kellhounds were working for the Federated Sons. And they this station here being once they've returned to the Lyran Commonwealth. It's interesting they're playing this card game and they're having a little chat. And he also, Dan mentions Meg Lang again real quick. You know, what's going on with Meg? It's like, oh, you know, she'll be fine. She's got to work out the difference between a wasp and a locust. Keep an eye on her. (laughs) Dan asks about Jones, right? This guy Jones, he asks about the Intrepid, the dropship. And like, he's like, oh, is he still refusing to let Jones ship out of him? And he's like, yeah. He says that he can't take Jones because... We're too close for the to the combine frontier for him to take a soldier on board. And then there and then Dan's like, Oh man, thirty years of tech in the Lyran services, and uh he's due to muster out a day before the jump ship leaves Pacifica. And so it's like this whole thing. They set up this whole plot point here where there's this guy, okay, 
this guy they work with, his name is Jones. He's a tech and he's going to retire the day after the jump ship leaves. All right. And that's like very sad Bummer. because it's like, why can't we like, can we just hold him back for a day? Because it won't return for six months. So it means the jump ship's going to leave and he's just going to have to hang out for, uh, six for like six months on this like rock. Right. And so they're like, there must be something Poor we can Jones. do. It's this whole thing. Yeah. They're having like this whole <laughs> conversation about this tech and you're like, come on, Jones. You know, he's almost done with this tour of duty. Why can't he leave a day early? And it's like, ah, oh, because uh, it has to do with like Comstar and like the shipping schedules and whatever, because, oh, because the the jump ship is carrying like Comstar messages. And so it's like, it has to leave on certain days. And it's like, well, you know, why can't we help him muster out a day early? And he's like, because he works for the Lyrans. They got the books and all that. He's like, he's like you know, Lyrans. They are good at counting money. <laughs> yeah. He's right. like, uh, uh. <laughs> he's like, he's like, they will check the paperwork, right? He has to muster out <laughs> on the 26th of May to get any of the bonus pay that he's entitled to, right? The computer's got to check him and everything. And he's like, man, we got to do something about it. It's so funny. They're all talking. Oh, and then there's a knock at the door, right? Like, tit, 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 and then Cat Wilson jumps up, the big man, and he like gets in front of the door. He like he like opens it with the crack, and he 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 makes it so like no one can see it, right? And he's like, uh huh, who is it? And it's like just some like messenger, but it's specifically, I like it brings up that Cat blocks the line of sights, especially because it's like a known thing in the Kellhounds that the officers play a poker game at their officer meetings, but like the winners or the losers are never discussed, right? To keep it. So it's like this thing he's like, yeah, the informality of the meetings could only survive if the officers knew that winning and losing did not matter that bragging rights. Yeah. It's like they keep it a secret, right? No one else knows uh, about the poker games. It's like this secret. They know they exist. They just don't know who's. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, Stackpole. You know? <laughs> Thank you. So you you will find out that Stackpole wants to do the things he wants to do, and he will find a way to make those things happen. Sometimes that means he's willing to do hard work over lots of books in order to set up scenes that he really wants to make happen. He wants to earn it, but he also wants to do what he wants to do. Well, so far, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a messenger, right? He gives Cat like a note, right? So Cat like shuts the door, right, and takes the note over to the colonel. The colonel reads it and he's like, Oh, Dan, I'm sorry. And he like hands the note over. And uh oh Dan does notice that the paper has like Comstar's logo emblazoned on it, right? So so they get a message from Comstar. And then so Dan's like, Oh no, did something happen to my father? And he like snatches the message and he like reads it, okay? And so he snatches it out of his commanding officer's hands. Patrick Kell's hands. Yes. So Dan Allard receives a message that on the 27th of November, 3026, Major Justin Allard suffered battle-related injuries, transferred to NAIS Medical Center, extensive trauma resulted in amputation of left arm, prognosis for cybernetic rehabilitation, you know, prognosis for survival, excellent. And Dan's like, oh no, not Justin. He's very upset. Colonel Kell like dismisses everyone except for Salome and Cat Wilson. Because they're like all very good friends. So the three of them had known Dan since he joined the Kellhounds. And uh, so, yeah, it's just Dan's just like, he's, he's holding this note and he's like looking out the window and the rain is coming down. He's like crying. He's like, oh no, how could this happen? 
he gives them the note, right? He's like, let them read it, Patrick. And they all read it. And they're like, oh, no, Dan, we're so sorry. And this is Dan says, he lost his arm, Patrick. He'll never pilot another mech. And you're like, oh, right. Just like Brent said, if you lose your arm, you can't pilot a mech, right? Because you have to operate the controls. And so that's why this is so tragic, right? If a mech warrior, it's like to train his whole life. And now like he can't pilot a mech anymore. It's very sad. They're like pouring, you know, whiskey. Salome brought Dan a glass filled with three fingers of whiskey. He's like, you've had a shock. We've all had a shock. It's like this moment. Yeah, Dan gets the news that Justin was injured. He's very upset, you know, and they're like, oh, we'll send you back to New Avalon. And he's like, no, no, that's okay. And Patrick's like, oh, come on. There's some business to take care of. But Dan like refuses. He's like, look, it's not going to do any good. It's fine. I just wish that they told me what happened. You know, as you can see, the right. note is How? very vague. Yeah, yeah, he's like it's he's like it's mostly upsetting because uh, it's like what happened? Was it a training accident? Was it an attack? Was it Yeah. Is it some like in situations like this, it's easy for your mind to go to dark places. So I having some information would probably not put him completely at ease, but at least make this somewhat more bearable. Yeah, and Dan's in there thinking as well. He's like it had to have been an ambush. Like Justin's too good. Like, this wouldn't happen to him straight out. So something must have gone wrong. Right. It is interesting. Uh, Salome Ward. I don't know if I brought her up. She's been in the room. She's one of the officers. Salome Ward, right? She's important. And she tells Dan, you know, you were around during the defection. When we we went through all that, the situation with the defection, right? And Dan thinks about it. He's like, oh, right. The defection. And it says here they had a strange battle on Mallory's world with the Karita commander, Yorinaga Karita, right? And Colonel Morgan Kell had quit the unit and joined a monastery, and two-thirds of the Kellhounds had left at the same time. And that was 11 years ago. That was right when Dan had joined. The Kellhounds had fallen apart. And Patrick Kell reformed them, but they're like apparently like a shadow of their former selves. It's a very interesting. He just kind of brings it up for a second. He's like, oh, yeah, the defection that did suck. And you're like, oh, interesting. What happened there? Okay. And Stackpole does another great job of tossing this out, fleshing it out just as much as he needed to, yep. to let you get the picture and then lets you continue on with it. It's great. It's this this scene. They're just consoling him. Dan's telling stories. He's like, you know, I remember when he enrolled in the military academy and he was telling me how he wanted to be a a mech warrior. And I decided I wanted to be a mech warrior too. And they're like, oh, I'm sure he'll be okay. The new Avalon Institute, they've made so many breakthroughs. He's getting the best possible technology. Come on, we can do it without you. Take the dropship. It'll be all right. And Dan's just like drinking the whiskey, like, no, but thank you all. You guys mean so much to me. I got work here to do. I got to do my job. It's what he would want. All right. And Patrick Kell, you know, understood, Captain. The door is always open. And then uh, the chapter ends with Daniel just being like, I'll find out who did this to you, Justin. And I swear his blood will be on the hands of an Allard. And you're like, oh, wow. He's like swears revenge for like this mysterious injury his brother has received. What a ride. This was a ride of a chapter. The bunker came, he gets the message. It's very sad. We're having like intimate, you know, personal moments about, it's like, oh my God, this is the chapter that started with him, like putting the coveralls on, on the way up the elevator or whatever. Yeah. 
Let's unpack this a little bit more. Stackpole immediately shows us he's like, oh, these guys are tight knit, but not just because they're like playing cards and shooting the shit and like cool mech jots. It's like, oh no, these guys have each other's backs. These guys care about each other. Stackpole is immediately like, I'm going to show you these guys are a family. And these are the fruits of his labor. You're like, oh man. And you're on this emotional roller coaster. You're meeting all these guys. You're like, oh, all these guys are cool. And then like this bad news and they're comforting him. And we learned a little bit more about Dan and Justin. Dan's all, was always standing up for Justin because he was half Capellan and you get all these little details. And it's all just like little paragraphs just here and there. And it's like by this fourth chapter, you're like, I know exactly who Justin and and Dan Allard are. Yeah, and how they fit in where they are as well. Right. And I think that's a crucial piece to it. And another thing... And you care. Yeah, that we haven't gotten to talk about before is that Stackpole handles this perspective shift so well. It's almost seamless, where you're going from Justin to Dan, back to back, and... As I said earlier, it wasn't something that, like, when you get introduced to Dan, it's not just a clone of Justin. They are two very distinct characters. Right. And he keeps you up with them at the same time. And not once through these opening chapters do we get lost in it. You're with them all the way through. Stackpole keeps you on the path he wants you on. It rules. He went sicko mode. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. They were like, man, we need you to write these like Battletech novels and he was like I got you <laughs> he went off he, He's, yeah, he comes out the gate hot there is an introduction in which Stackpole kind of writes about like kind of how all this happened and I find it oh, yeah. very humorous yeah yeah. maybe we'll hit that at the since we missed it maybe we'll have to hit that at like the, the remembrance yeah yeah I'm sure that'll uh, be something we talk about in the remembrance when we wrap this book oh yeah of course I love the foreword it's great it is cool that we learned so much about the Kellhounds. Everyone knows the Kellhounds, dude. And you're like, yeah, man. It's funny to think that they weren't like a thing until this. Like this Black is where we get the, the Kellhounds. They got the dropships. Through this brief couple chapters, I understand more of Charles Gideon's love for the Kellhounds. <laughs> Cat shrugged easily. A man loves his brother. No dishonor in that. I do also, don't forget the little plot set up about like Technician Jones retiring a day oh, late. Yes. That's, that's like a whole thing. I love, don't, Pour don't one forget out for about, Jones. yeah, it's like this whole conversation where they're like, oh man, what about Jones? And uh, don't forget about Jones. I'm excited to, uh, that's <laughs> the, one of the plot lines I'm, I'm, I'm most excited. I'm like, what's going to happen with this? Uh, what's going to happen with this guy? <laughs> this is interesting. Also, What's this deal with the monastery, Colonel Morgenkell? Who's this guy? Mallory's World? Karita yeah, Commander? they do. They, yeah, it's very Uranagi mysterious. Karita? Yeah. That's a Karita. Yeah, Mallory's That's World. That's a big last name. <laughs> yes. Stackpole definitely does a l- real good job of laying out things for you to unravel as you're going to read these books. He just drops them, though. He's yeah. just like, here's a little seasoning right here. And you're like, what? What? What's this about? He's like, we'll we'll figure it out together. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like he really flexes on the right to do that from paying off already from the prologue. Absolutely. Of having like, hey, I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff at you. Take it to memory. 
because as we're going through, and by this fourth chapter, we've already been able to tie back to it. So as I kept reading in this, every time he's dropping something like that, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to remember this because there's no way he's just putting this out and leaving it. He's going to come back and flesh it. Of the economy of storytelling, right? It's very unlikely that you're going to get something that wasn't meant to be here. Yeah. If you're wise enough, you can kind of be like, hmm, I see where these threads are going. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can see uh, the big beats coming up. Right. But I don't think that's a bad thing either. I don't either. Because that builds, he uses it. He understands what he's doing. And he's like, oh, yes, I imagine you have some anticipations about that. And so let's exploit that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's not a coward. It's no. true. <laughs> <laughs> no, and he's thrown down a lot of big ideas. The prologue opens up with, hey, the balance of power might shift. Uh, we got a yep. wedding to look forward to. We've got all these different mechanisms that he's already laid out. I mean, it's just... That might be the biggest understatement of the United <laughs> Battletech universe. <laughs> But I, I just, I really enjoy that. I, I feel like he knew that he was going to be able to earn his stripes here. Yeah. And within these first couple chapters, he gives us so much to unpack, so much to go through. But I have full faith it's going to pay off already. So I'm very excited to keep going. And I can't, I mean, I feel like we're going to move through this trilogy at our pace that we have set. <laughs> But We're it's still not going to feel like enough. Yeah. But we hope you're here for it at this point. I'm already excited for the remembrance. <laughs> well, let's just keep it to one foot in front of the other for yep. now. <laughs> and we'll have to see what those next steps are next week when we continue on in Warrior On Guard. This was Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill. I was joined, as usual, by my friends Brent and Aaron. We would like to thank. As always, the author of this book, Michael Stackpole, and of course all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. And we'd like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. We have an email. It is advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, corrections, concerns, please do not hesitate. Advice at heat. Dot management. We're also on social media at of Mexican men, Instagram, Twitter, one word at of Mexican men. And I do want to take a moment and throw a shout out here to two emails that we got for the price of glory, but they came in right after we wrapped the recording on the remembrance. So we didn't get a chance to talk about them, but I wanted to say thank you to Michael, who sent us some great information on Lanchester laws when we were talking about oh. combat loss groupings. Yes. We're definitely going to touch more on this when we get to this remembrance, because it's it was really neat to take a look at, as well as he wraps the email with, thanks for all the work that goes into the show. If you need to reach me, I'll be in the field. Some guy named Deeth hired me to pilot a stinger. He said there was a sudden <laughs> opening. And when I read that, I absolutely lost it. So well, I thought it was so incredibly <laughs> funny. And I just wanted to do a shout out. I also wanted to follow it up. We got an email from Jeff who was talking about his time in Battletech and wanted to throw out a recommendation to give Battle Troops a try. Uh, to really capture some of the yes. decision at Thunder Rift 
on foot combat. So that is definitely something I'm sure at some point we'll have a battle troops game going on. Uh, maybe something to look out for on a YouTube video down the road. No way. <laughs> maybe. No way. Yep. Maybe. That'd be insane. Battle troops, dude. <laughs> battle troops. The first time I heard about battle troops was on that uh, one Wolfnet episode. And uh, so I, it was one of those things that's been completely off my radar. But looking at it, I'm like, oh, this looks pretty cool. So we'll have to check it out. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Michael. Uh, we really appreciate you reaching out. And uh, like I said, just wanted to make sure we shouted you out because we missed you on the remembrance. Yes. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Really, we love it. Keep them coming. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again next week when we continue our discussion of Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Thank you so much. Until then. Remember, kids, riflemen's arms do go backwards. We'll see you next time. Say love.